BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Hello, friends. Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Aditi Joshi. She is a digital healthcare consultant and the author of Telehealth Success, How to Thrive in the New Age of Remote Care, a fascinating book describing the tools that underlie telehealth programs, practices, trust, empathy, access, all the things post-pandemic. What we've learned as a society is likely going to be the new norm forever. She also has experience working for the American Medical Association, Weight Watchers, of all things, go figure. And she also consults for a group called Rocket Doctor, not to be confused with the old school, terrible platform, Rate My Doctor. And we focus a lot on pretty much where does digital health go wrong and right. And again, common theme, how can industry speak human? All that and more coming up right now. Dr. Joshi. Hi, Matt. Good to see you in person. Three dimensions. You too. Nice to see you. Nice to meet you. Yep. We want to give a shout out to Chet Robson of M Disrupt for uh, doing this Tinder date for us. Thank you, <laughs> Hi, Chet. Chet. <laughs> yes. Good man. A good man. I am fascinated by your work. I like that you have a lot of personality and what you bring to the conversation. It's not like, oh, here's my academic plaque on the back of my wall. There's there's more to you than that. And you're feisty and you're fierce. And and you, you know how to, I would say, clap back a little bit to the system. Uh, but let's get humble beginnings. All right? all right. Born in India? No, born in Madison, Wisconsin, but grew up in Chicago. Wait, Indians in Madison, Wisconsin? Yes. Is that a thing? Or were yes. you happen to be you were the only one, like I was the only Jew on Staten Island? Well, okay, it wasn't a huge community. We all knew each other, but my parents definitely had a nice little community of uh, Indian Americans that were over there. All right. H- how'd you get to Wisconsin? God, my parents, they decided to go. Uh, we were there for a couple of years, um, but uh, we moved to Chicago pretty quickly. I was about three <laughs> years old, three years old. So I don't remember a lot about Madison. Okay, fair enough. It wasn't the cheese. The cheese didn't cut it. Not get the it? cheese, not the there? badgers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what got you into medicine? Was it a family thing or on your own? No. You know, I think uh, if you asked me when I was five years old what I wanted to do, I always said I wanted to be a doctor. I think also like a superhero, but, you know, I I chose doctor in the end. Well, our cultures have the same, why aren't you a doctor, Mm -hmm. right? True. And I definitely went to medical school with a lot of people who probably didn't really want to do it, but I always did. Oh, very nice. So you're actually one of the few people that are doing what you wanted to do. Yes. Versus me, a music major who's now in all this crap that I do right now. It's a good use of my time. It, you know what? You're getting the voice out there. You're questioning all of healthcare. That's what we need. So really quickly, like, so you were in medical school and you got your degree. Did Was there, just maybe a softball question, was there empathy training? Did you go through that? 
Not really. When I was in medical school, I think there was a class or there was a class about how do you speak to patients where we would practice scenarios. But I don't think we had something that really gave us enough about empathy. I mean, there wasn't time. So we do very short little uh, classes for that kind of thing, but it really wasn't uh, stressed. So there's two schools of thought here coming from the sort of the patient world is do you want your doctor to be a mechanic or an empath? If they're both, it's gravy. But if you had to choose, what should you do? That's a tough question because for patients, the empath is important to connect with them. But you really need them to have the medical knowledge, right? In the end, you need to make sure that they know what they're talking about. And for clinicians and physicians, we have to know because – well, let me back up a second. If we're talking about burnout, it actually is worse the more empathetic you are. We have to put up walls, which is unfortunate, just to get through our day. Uh, But on the other hand, you also need to have the information because if we don't know enough about medical knowledge, we're going to get burnout too when there's bad outcomes. Well, let's talk about that too, because you know you were in emergency medicine. Yes, and that's like God's work. You're always on the fly; nothing stops, right? <laughs> nothing stops, twenty four seven. The question I always ask providers is like, "What's going on at three in the morning in your head?" Ooh, three in the morning—that's when I got my second wind. I worked uh, nights for quite a bit of time, but at three in the morning, you see really people who are really sick or places where the system fails you. So you see patients who work three jobs, and that's the only time they can come in for a primary care visit. Or you see uh, the the results of violence and substance use and all sorts of things come in at at nighttime, and then patients who are really sick. So you see those things. It really clears up a lot of what medicine is in this country. That's what the 3 a.m. in the emergency department really is. Do you think the acknowledgement that doctors are human beings with lives too has gotten better or worse? It's gotten better, actually quite a bit better. So I... I'm open about this, but I've had burnout twice. So the first time was in 2012. And at that time, it wasn't called burnout. I just uh, sort of worked through it. My colleagues were like, oh, maybe it's depression. Maybe it's this or that. But it was not depression because if I was not at work, I was fine. And then, you know, fast forward during the pandemic, there was a whole lot of discussion about burnout and how do we treat physicians better or clinicians. Obviously, nurses are also having a lot of burnout. Uh, and we had more tools for it. So it definitely has gotten much better. I can even see just personally. I always give a shout out whenever the burnout conversation comes up on this show to my dear friend, Gabe Charbonneau. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Gabe, but I can make introductions. Mm-hmm. He's the the father of the fightburnout.org movement. Right. And there's a burnout summit happening in New York City in two weeks. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing. Mm-hmm. And it makes me happy that there's finally some clapback from the provider community that, you know, we're mad as hell and we can't take it anymore. What are yes. your thoughts? I agree. We we can't take it anymore. Uh, we, we're told that we need to do above and beyond what humans can actually do. You know, I said we're the more empathetic you are, the more you feel for your patients, that's okay. But naturally, as you go through emergency medicine or any field, you have to put up those walls because it's impossible to keep them up. And so now having a recognition that, you know, we're also human, we can't do that. There are limits to what we can provide is great. Also figuring out how to make healthcare better and make sure that we have normal working hours or better working hours so we can, you know, recover. And then lastly, just uh, realizing that, you know, we are also physicians, but we are not superhuman. We cannot fix everything. In the end, death always wins, which is not a great answer to everything. But in truth, that's really what happens. And so we can't fix everything. Well, there's been this chronic encroaching vice grip on providers around the country around 
mandates or goals or, or numbers and stats that, that almost like destroys Hippocrates. Yeah, it, it's true. You know, we can't we can't do it all. Um, and because of that, people also have coping mechanisms that make them feel like they're breaking their oath. That's what it feels like. Well, we'll get to digital health in a second, but you know, you went to school before the internet, as I kind of went to school mm-hmm. before the internet. Mm-hmm. And we have a very different perspective on that than maybe the folks that went to medical school in the 70s did. And that analog is great. And we made a lot of progress, but it's always still a hurdle to do that. What percentage of your time used to be paperwork and just pen and paper and pad versus what percentage <laughs> of your time might just be typing the same amount of stuff. Oh my gosh, I can type faster, but I don't think I saved any time, I realized, because when the pen and paper, we had our charts, at some point we'd be like, well, there's no more paper left and we probably have to make this much more concise. But when I'm typing, I will just write long notes and I'm constantly getting alerts. So yes, it is very distracting. Whereas the paper charts, you're not really getting that. You have to go look for the results. And so- it was a lot different. It, feel, it feels, I don't have actual data to support myself in this, but it feels like the, with the typing, I more, was more glued to the computer than I was with pen and paper. Well, one could argue the transference of anger management went from throwing the printer out the window <laughs> to, what, <laughs> punching a hole in the monitor? <laughs> if I was strong enough to do it, I probably would have. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about, I'm a creature of history, and I remember what advocacy was like when I started my nonprofit in 2007. And it was like mailers and forums, and you know everyone had an AOL address still back then. <laughs> it was like dial-up modems and whatnot. You know, the transformation of, of medicine you know, and and anything in the data space. I remember a time, or maybe you, you would remember this too, when no one trusted eBay. Yes, or Amazon, right? All of those Or PayPal. Companies. All of like them, yes. Putting my credit card on the interwebs. Oh, forget it. It's a scam. It has to be. I was also involved in uh, the early Google Health Advisory Council in 2008, and there was just a lot of hubris. And like, if we just do it, of course they'll trust us, right? And do you feel like that, that paternalistic, sense of, of ideology is still there in downstream? Yes and no. I think it's not as bad as it used to be. But often, especially in digital health, is we assume that if we just provide it, people, patients want it and they're going to use it. They're not because they don't understand uh, how it's going to actually improve their health care. We're not doing necessarily a great job of telling them how. Uh, just because Google tells you that this healthcare. This healthcare tech is going to work really well for you. Doesn't mean a patient under, like understands why. Right, and Doctor Google has changed too. People used to bring like reams of paper, well, when they had paper. <laughs> to your point, into the doctor. What is today's version of that? People will come in with their phone and say, "I looked at it," or now they have their devices, they have their wearables. They'll come in and say, "Well, I have my heart rate from these days, my blood pressure. What do I do with this information?" Sometimes we have too much information, so they might be uh, a little overwhelmed. And then we'll feel also overwhelmed. We don't always know what to do with all that data either. But it comes down to trust, right? Yes. And trust is probably even lower than it used to be? I think that is true. I think there is less trust in just the system. Maybe with all this too much information and also because people can now look up and find out for themselves, which is a good thing. But it, it makes you trust uh, other people less if you're not sure where their information is coming from. Well, as someone who found out they have cancer on an answering machine Oof. in 1995, there's an over-under on this, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to know that. It's, it's interesting, too, because there's patients who really want to know everything. 
they want to know as much uh, as they can about anything that you're doing. So they have all the information. There's ones who want very little information and trust their doctor to tell them what to do and they'll do it. Most people are in the middle and definitely the people who want no information, that's definitely going away. But you still see some of that every so often. And so you have to figure out what's the right balance and how much uh, information do they want. Well, it's also not just the trust. It's how the information is conveyed to the person, too. Mm -hmm. Academia needs to be academia. You need your syllables and your acronyms. It's really important to make sure that there's real science and real data to make sure no one dies on your watch. But at the same time, I talk about can, can science speak person? Can syllables be less syllables to the average person that isn't an educated academic? No, I agree. I I tell med students and residents that if your patient doesn't understand you, that's on you. You have to figure out how to get that information in a way that people will understand. That's your fault if you're not doing it correctly. Mainly because if you know something well enough, you should be able to explain it to anyone. So I'm saying that's a it's it's you don't not knowing your information well enough. So does that mean that all med students should go through communication skill training? Oof. Yes, probably. There's probably got to be some of that. But I will you heard say, it here, folks. Yeah, it's true. But I know that the medical schools are like, we're trying to teach everything. Diseases yeah. have gotten more complicated. How do we do it all? That's the other thing. But I think they've been trying to, and I've seen it, where they're stressing more um, that medical students have these skills coming in. So when they interview them, they look at them as a full picture because they want the doctors of the future to have a bit more of these skills than they used to. So the next generation of the you's and the me's, their receptivity to online is probably just innate. Yes. I'll tell you right now. So when I was teaching at Jefferson, the medical students, I would like listen to them, talk to them. And I'd be like, yeah, I would not get into medical school today. <laughs> I don't think uh, there's they're very impressive. But yeah, there's a big all around picture that they want for uh, medical students now and for doctors. Back in my day, <laughs> there were five drugs <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> and today there's 50,000 drugs for a single person. Yeah. How the hell do you keep up with shit? I am a big advocate for using technology where it's useful. That is a great way to figure out how to use it so that you keep it in one place. You can delete it, add it from there. Your doctor can help you do that for you. Uh, your family can help do that for you. So you, your pharmacy can do it, right? So that you can actually do and use it uh, and figure out where you're actually at. Bringing in pill bottles doesn't always work, right? I know it's old school, but sometimes people may have stopped a medication. They'll look at it. Now, saying that, uh, there are many times that the medical re reconciliation, which is what our, we call it in our uh, electronic medical records, are not up to date. So that ends up being also frustrating. But if we did it right, that's where we should put it. I was doing my diligence stalking you, and, and I saw that you worked at a company called Doctor on Demand in 2013. It yes. reminded me of like ratemydoctor.com. <laughs> Remember that? Like yes. when like, you would berate the doctor if the office staff was mean? Yes. This is a different company. Doctor on Demand is a telemedicine company. It started up at that time. And so, yeah, that's when I started getting into telemedicine. Uh, um, and uh, we started with doctor-to-patient consults over video. So it definitely was not a rate my doctor, but it was trying to increase access for patients who necessarily couldn't necessarily get into a clinic. Well, it sounds ahead of its time. Yes. I mean, there were a few other telemedicine startups. Uh, MD Live was around, Teladoc, Amwell, American Well were around. Uh, but we were definitely one of the only ones that were building this out. So at the time, really, we we're trying to figure out what telemedicine was. I recall that I, I met a guy named Matt Holt. Mm -hmm. uh, you know Matt? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Shout out to Matt. Real pioneer guy. Mm -hmm. Interesting yes. human being, to uh -huh. say the least. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> but I met him through my relationships at Google, and I was invited to speak at the, an event called Health 2.0. Mm -hmm. 
and no one had ever put the words digital and health in the same breath before. So what the hell does this mean? How am I on a dial-up learning about medications <laughs> and the, the, the notion of like, I feel like in Futurama, like or the Dick Tracy watch with the video on them, are we really going to talk to our doctors on the internet? What's it like, the generational differences in trust and physically wanting to be there, just the nascence of that early conversation, and you were there. Yes. Yes, there was a lot of trying to build out, not trust, for, not even just trust from patients, but from other physicians, because it is new, and people didn't trust that you'd get the right information. People didn't think that they wanted it. People didn't think that it would work well. Obviously, we're slowly proving them wrong, but I would say slowly. But uh, yes, but um, when we talk about like just digital health in general, people make it really complicated. But all it is, is we're using technology for things that we normally would use paper in healthcare. That's it. Let's take a quick break and we'll talk about your book when we come back. Uh, after these words from our fine sponsors, Rate My Doctor and Web Crawler? Yes. Okay. Netscape. Done. We'll be back. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I've had a lot of authors on the show. I'm a pending author. Mm -hmm. And I always ask, like, why a book? Right. Who reads books? Right. I, obviously, we know who reads books. But physical paper. We talked about, like, having reams of paper, killing trees, blah, blah, blah. Is this an ebook? Is this an audiobook? Is it a physical book? Why a book? Great question. So uh, I was actually approached to write this with my by my co-author. And the reason for this book is uh, that it doesn't exist. So if you look out there at what – telehealth is or how you build a company, you'll find blog posts, you'll find companies out there. But with the increasing interest in it, more doctors want to do it, more doctors want to add it, more health systems, more governments want to do it. There isn't any framework out there about how to do this. 
And so, Wait, I should probably say the name of the book. Oh, yes. So the name of the book is Telehealth Success, How to Thrive in the New Age of Remote Care. That's correct. So That's who's your reader? Who's your ideal reader? So there's a couple. So it is, and to answer your question, it will be an ebook and also an audible book. So it should be, so first we could talk, uh, it's for any physicians, clinicians that want to get into virtual care, find out what the landscape looks like. It's for people who work in digital health, tech companies, startups, who either want to work in telehealth, build a telehealth platform, or just understand how the entire market works. Because telehealth is one of the first basics of it. Uh, it's also for people who finance it for payers who want to know like what the landscape looks like. And I will say it's for patients. You know, the patient section is the first one. It has a lot of stories. It has a lot of reasons. Patients might want to use it. And it gives a little bit more information for people who are either nervous about it or like it and to figure out what telemedicine or telehealth is for you. Yeah, I read all the, um, all the updates about the book. By the way, which is available now for sale on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Like, please go check out the book. My version of your book is called Telehealth Success, How Not to Fuck It Up. <laughs> yes, how not, how not to Fuck It Up. And just really, you know, we get really scared with new innovations, especially in healthcare. This has been around a while, so people assume that everybody's doing it. They're really not. A lot of people are still hesitant or they're not using it to its fullest ability. And there are a lot of patients out there who really love it. If you look at the data and the research, patients especially really love it. They get a lot of benefit from it. So we should be offering it to them more. Like we should be listening to why they like it and why it's important to them. That doesn't always happen. And so a lot of this book is trying to say this is why it's worthwhile. And here's how you can build it in a safe manner so you feel comfortable as an organization, as a doctor, as a payer, whatever it is or whatever avenue in the space that you're working in. This goes unsaid, but obviously the pandemic was kind of like a forced adoption to the country. Yes. Now that that's kind of waned, has that maintained its trust? So the trust has decreased because the number of visits has gone down. So I've had numerous conversations with even friends of mine who work in digital health that think that, you know, telehealth is not proven its worth or it doesn't have great ROI, et cetera. And I want to tell them that this is an emergency situation. So in an emergency, you take and do things quickly. You don't have time for people to really understand it or to get feel trust in it. So in that way, no, there's not as much trust as you would think from the pandemic. But on the flip side, now people know what it is, right? So now we can actually take that and build the trust that we needed prior to the pandemic and say, hey, you all know what this is. This is why it matters. And again, I'm going to say it again, patients really like it. And so we shouldn't just think about what the ROI is. We should remember that patients really found it useful and it's brought healthcare to different environments that didn't get healthcare before. That's really important to remember that. Why is it called telehealth? It's not a telephone. Well, hopefully in the future, we'll just say it's healthcare. Right. It takes out the tele. But it's because, again, we just still, we, we think we've gotten all of the integration into society. We really haven't. We still have a difference in using it and connecting with your doctor over video or phone or chat. We still think of it as a different thing. Well, there's also a spectrum that I think people don't really understand. It's I feel more comfortable talking to like my nutritionist, you know, or my my just a coach or, you know, the consumer kind of stuff mm -hmm. just seems a little more natural. Like it's a Zoom meeting with this someone that you can relate to. But seeing a doctor in a lab coat on my phone <laughs> has a very different vibe. Maybe it's generational. I don't know. What are your thoughts? 
a lot of it is because we're so used to having a physical exam in person and sitting in that room with the doctor. I get it. That's why it feels a little bit different. I've talked about this a lot that not every single time that you have to see your doctor, do you need to do it in person? And then second, you can actually get uh, information from whether wearables or devices or other digital health tools that we have out there. And you can do a version of an exam on telemedicine to get that information. So it is it is different. It does take a cultural shift. Even patients feel that way. And in fact, most patients want a hybrid. They don't want to see their doctor always on telehealth. And they want to have the option to see them in person. But, you know, you just have to remember that, like, everything moves forward. Ten years ago, oh, not ten years ago. Oh, my God. Fifteen years ago. How having, old are we? I'm sorry. I know. I was like, whoops, that's not ten. <laughs> it's been fifteen at least. Having a smartphone was a weird thing. Being able to, you know, email at all times is weird. But now it's not. And so I think everything just similarly will go forward and we'll keep moving it, moving the needle and building trust and, Again, talking about how patients like what they want out of their healthcare experience, and I think it's going to become more and more normal. I mean, I'm not going to speak for the entire sandwich generation in America, <laughs> but I like telehealth because I don't have to go anywhere. Yeah, I got my kids, I got a vacuum, I got laundry, my, my wife's going out of town, whatever it is, it's convenient. Yes. So there is an over-under on do I really want to physically see a person in real life, which is just, I think Gen X boomer chemistry. We want the physical interaction. We eye contact. Why? That's why you're here in the studio. I do shows here in the studio. <laughs> but at the same time, man, I don't have to find parking in Brooklyn. That's fantastic. Yes. Saves on expenses and travel. People don't miss work. Uh, people don't have to pull their kids out of school who are doing telehealth from the school. There's a lot of benefits when you don't necessarily need to be in person. We're never going to get rid of in-person care. I mean, I'm an emergency medicine doctor. We are never going to get rid of that. But there's so many avenues that we could just make life a little bit easier. Right. And again, it's the strata, right? If it's mm -hmm. like break fix or consumer health, it's a varying different way to consider it versus I have cancer. <laughs> I'm yes. not going to chemo over the web. No, absolutely. <laughs> right. I, when someone invents that, that would be fascinating. Well, Wireless chemo. I have a follow-up question for you. So there have been some studies here and there about getting bad news over telehealth, and it's usually in oncology patients. Uh, and there have been people all over the map. Some people say, you know, I would rather have it at home because I'm at home with my family around me. I can have a little bit, a little bit much support. Support. I'm not in a clinic. And then others are saying, well, it seems weird. I don't want to. I don't want. I don't want it to do it over video. So how would you feel about that? Again, I, I think it. it almost adds a level of autonomy and agency to patients to decide mm -hmm. what's best for them. But then you want to make sure the receiving end of that knows to ask the question, would you like me to give you the update on your iPhone or would you like to come in in three weeks? Right. So it's not just on your answering machine, for example. Right. Again, speaking of someone who's totally a <laughs> cancer on the answering machine. Yes, exactly. Not the best way to be told these things. Yeah. Right. Yes. Or like how Burger broke up with Carrie on a Post-it. Sorry, my yes. Sex in the City reference of the show. I was there. For, I, I definitely saw that show. Don't worry. I know that right. reference. <laughs> Never break up with somebody on a post-it. Exactly. Yes. But I, I think I agree. I mean, look, it, maybe it goes down to the spectrum again. If, if it's like, you know, we took we saw the x-ray, you know, he needs to keep the cast on, you know, no sports for six weeks. That's one thing, right? Versus, you know, you have an autoimmune disease and if you don't get you on this medication tomorrow – you're going to die in three hours, right? Like there's a, yes. you got you to look at it as a, it's an opportunity to mm -hmm. rethink, again, the, the medical human relationship. Absolutely. Oncologists are interesting because all of the research on them, it goes in both ways because they're very protective of their patients. And so when you talk to them, 
they have a lot of really interesting input on all of these questions too. I mean, again, if it's bad news, you're right. I'd yeah. rather be at home in a place I'm familiar with that I have control over versus in a clinical setting that's, you know, white walls and a little apathetic and not intrinsically designed for that kind of emotional reaction. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you have to drive home after that, too. So Yeah, no one wants that. Nobody wants that. All right. I couldn't help but ignore the fact that you work for Weight Watchers. Yeah, so uh, it was a consulting gig with them just recently. They have decided or wanted to get into uh, the prescription medicine space with the Ozempic Wigovi. Everyone's heard about oh, that. Oh, God, that's a, another that's podcast. That's a whole different thing. But Don't they- do it, folks. No, 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 no Zempic. <laughs> so I was helping and working with them when they were looking into acquiring a telemedicine company that they now use for that. So it was really just looking at how does it work, what is the telemedicine requirements, and how would it fit into their model. So it was really I'm sorry, like they're that. WW now, right? Yeah, it was a, it was a company called Sequence, and now they're WW. Why so many syllables? Are we afraid <laughs> of saying Weight Watchers? It's okay to watch your weight go up or down. Like still watched it. It's a rebrand. Like we're all just trying to rebrand ourselves every decade, maybe. Oh God. I think I'm probably due for it soon. Maybe. Did you see that Pepsi's <laughs> logo is back to the '80s logo? Speaking I of rebranding. Saw- I saw that. You know there's a bunch of kids who have no idea what we're talking about. No. And the Burger King logo is back to the 70s logo. Mm-hmm. Right? God, and Pizza back? Hut is building like old school Pizza Huts again. Oh my gosh. We're going backward. Sorry, 20-somethings listening. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you have your no idea. conversations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pop culture references. <laughs> it's intense. It's intense. All right. So give me some success stories. Absolutely. So, oh my God, there's so many. So I'll talk about... One that we did at uh, Jefferson, we have uh, one of the ones we we were taking too long to see patients, basically, in our emergency room. And so we wanted to cut down that time and get patients started on their orders. And so instead of them waiting in the waiting room, they would come in during triage and they would see a telehealth doctor. So it would be one of our other emergency medicine docs. They would see them, talk to them, put in their orders, and then they would go back and the nurses would start their orders. So instead of having to wait from the waiting room, go back into the ER, then get their orders started. We started their orders for them. And so by the time they sometimes saw the doctor, I will admit sometimes there were hours of wait. That does happen. But a lot of times their workup would be done because it was, almost, it was hours later. And so then a decision could be made instead of waiting at that time and then waiting another four hours. So that was a big one. We were able to turn around our how long patients were waiting basically overnight doing that. Uh, that was one. And then, you know, during COVID, I think that's a very common one, but in Philadelphia, we were probably the only program that existed at the time to see patients on over telehealth from home. And so even though we're in a city with a number of academic hospitals, we all worked together with the city as well and said, okay, any patient that may need information or COVID testing or finding out, they came through us first. And it was a real cooperation to be able to see that. And I think in the first week, we saw like 6,000 patients, something just above and beyond what we were capable of actually staffing in the beginning. And so we had to turn that around really quickly, but we did, and we came together and did that. So that was a big one. IHS, so the Indian Health Services, similarly uh, were using telehealth to try to get more access in Alaska. Wait, wait, white guy question. Is that Native American or Indian Indian? So it is still called the Indian Health Services, but it is Native American. Yes. (laughs) That needs a rebrand. I know. I feel uncomfortable saying it. The Indigenous People's Health Society. I know. So everybody, I swear that's what it's called. It's It does feel uncomfortable. But yes, it's so this Native American population and in Alaska. They were able to see 
cardiologists and specialists much faster because they were getting telehealth access. And because of that, they saved money having to, instead of flying out these specialists to the reservations, they were able to put that money and expand programs for them for programs that they needed. Another big success, right? Well, so so let's wrap up our final uh, minutes on, on access, right? Yes. You don't have internet. This don't work. It doesn't work. Where is infrastructure in this? I mean, we're talking about like electric cars and there's no grid, right? We're talking about access to people. That, this is so simple. It's so easy. You're, you live in the middle of nowhere. You can have an iPad and get this done. Who's in charge of infrastructure? You're preaching to the choir. So there was a couple of things that happened that are trying to grow this out. So the FCC is trying to get cheaper Wi-Fi to people and expand that access. So there were a number of programs and grants so that either companies that were trying to expand telehealth access or even people who live in those communities could get cheaper Wi-Fi. They're still doing this. And there's actually a lot of money. And so anybody out there who is working in this space, there's Dear money. Verizon. <laughs> yeah, please, there's money out there that they're trying to give away and nobody's applying for. And then two, you know, during the pandemic, because obviously there were places that people didn't have any Wi-Fi, community centers or groups would come together to get those patients and get a place that there was a kiosk that they could actually come in, libraries, pharmacies, whatever it was, so patients could come in and get access because... There are these places that you can go in some of these smaller communities. It's not ideal. Obviously, you'd rather do it at home, but it was better than nothing until we can get connectivity to everybody, which we should have. It's honestly, at this point, it's basically a, a right. Damn straight, it's yeah. a right. I mean, if it's there, I mean, if it's not there, people lose money. Lose money, they lose time, they don't have access. You know, some people are getting better health care now because of it. Other people are still not getting better health care. It's just, it's... It's it's absolutely necessary for everybody. All right. Uh, last question. Mm -hmm. Ignorant softball question. I know nothing of the American Medical Association outside of that it exists. <laughs> mm -hmm. what's, what's your take on them? I know you did some work for them. Yeah. So it is an old organization. I was just talking to someone. I think that there are a lot of uh, stereotypes of it. So a lot of people are not members of it. But the work I do for them is specifically – uh, with their digital medicine work. So they do a lot of work in digital health. They're really proponents for furthering all of these like like telehealth and RPM, which is remote patient monitoring and using devices. They really are looking to make this better for everybody. So I work with them on that. And so they're really changing. And so people, everyone look back into them. So if you're interested in any of that work as well. All right, Dr. Aditi U. Joshi, <laughs> yes. did I say that right? You did. Okay, author of Telehealth Success, How Not to Fuck It Up. I'm sorry, wait, no, it's actually <laughs> called Telehealth Success, How to Thrive in the New Age of Remote Care, available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to meet you in person. Thank you, Matt. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us, and we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.